0: welcome. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Thank you for giving me your time. One of the things that unites all Christians, those on the left and the right, is the desire to imitate Jesus' actions and to live by His teachings. Primary among those actions and teachings is Jesus' command that we are to love one another as He loved us, But that love is not to be limited only to fellow Christians. It is to extend to all the world, especially as Jesus described those in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25 as the least of these, those people who both society and religions have pushed to the margins and feel are deserving of being ostracized, excluded, or ignored. Those marginalized people include a wide array from those of different skin color, ethnic culture, nationality, social or economic status, and those who have violated cultural norms, taboos, and laws, and those who struggle with a special challenge such as limitation, loss, trauma, abuse, addiction, enduring mental or physical illness and disease, None of these fit into the pattern of majority culture. And yet these are the ones with whom Jesus identified and said that we are to identify as well. So throughout my efforts at offering this podcast, I regularly will include episodes such as today about situations of folks with significant challenges so that we will be able to understand better their experience And hopefully, it will enable us to be better followers of Jesus and imitators of Him in our relationships with them. My guest today is the Reverend Robert Randolph. Robert is an ordained Baptist minister and has been active in ministry for 44 years. He has his undergraduate degree from Carson Newman College, a Master of Divinity from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and has clinical pastoral education experience at the University of Louisville Medical School, the South Carolina Department of Mental Health, and Duke University Hospital. Robert has been a pastor and a chaplain at the Swanadoa Valley Youth Development Center. He is presently serving as a volunteer chaplain at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina. Robert is a survivor of strokes and his work at the hospital is with those who have experienced strokes. So Robert, welcome. Thank you for being with us and help us understand what strokes are, the different kinds and especially what the experiences in life is like for those who have had and survived strokes. So let's start with some general information and then you can tell us your own personal story. So what are some basic facts about what strokes are?
1: Thank you, David. It is a privilege to be here and to share this time with you and those who are listening. Um, the technical medical term for a stroke is a cerebral vascular accident. I always thought that seemed uh, somewhat ironic because we think of accidents as often being kind of things that aren't that serious. Um uh, because we have accidents in life and usually we pick up and go on, but a cerebral vascular accident, which is something in the head that affects the blood vessels, um, is a, usually a very traumatic experience. It is very widespread, more so than most of us realize. In the United States, and these statistics come from the Intranet Stroke Center, which is col- a collaborative of Washington University School of Medicine, University of Texas Medical Center, and the National Institute of Health. That's the source of these statistics. Stroke is the third leading cause of death in the United States. More than 140,000 people die each year from stroke in the U.S. Stroke is the leading cause of serious long-term disability in the United States. Last year, approximately 795,000 people suffered a stroke. About 600,000 of these are first attacks and 185,000 are recurrent attacks. Nearly three quarters of all strokes occur in people over the age of 65. The risk of having a stroke more than doubles each decade after the age of 55. Strokes can and do occur at any age, Nearly one-fourth of strokes occur in people under the age of 65, and I was one of those people. Stroke death rates are higher for African Americans than for whites, even at younger ages. On average, someone in the United States has a stroke every 40 seconds. Stroke accounted for about one of every 17 deaths in the United States in 2006, Stroke mortality for 2005 was 137,000. The risk of ischemic stroke in current smokers is about double that of non-smokers after adjustment for other risk factors. Atrial fibrillation, ATF, is an independent risk factor for stroke, increasing risk about five-fold. High blood pressure is the most important risk factor for stroke. My personal story is that uh, I was a young, energetic, very enthusiastic, high-energy pastor of age 33 who had just moved to suburban Washington, D.C. from a small town in South Carolina to pastor a Baptist congregation. I was uh, largely unaware of any risk factors that I had for critical illness, um, was living under very high stress of moving from a very laid-back, rural, largely rural lifestyle to the fast pace of Washington, D.C. There were numerous factors that I did not anticipate. Uh, And in a cut to the chase, I was very, very stressed. I was very, very overwhelmed by the challenges of shifting to a suburban uh, congregation in that high-paced environment. I did not know how to cope. I did not know how to ask for help. I thought I was indestructible, and I simply kept working harder and harder and harder to do what I had always done. I did not stop. I did not take time to evaluate my situation. I did not know how to ask for help. Um, My family was under stress. I had a newborn and a three-year-old, as well as a wife who was not working, and I was the sole support, financial support of the family. And so I I took that very seriously and kept going. Uh, I was stopped in my tracks uh, about a year after I moved there by a case of shingles which is, as most people know now, a herpes virus. Uh, the general uh, medical opinion was that I was vulnerable because I was under so much stress, and that virus uh, became active in my, from my central nervous system, and I had this bout of shingles on my head. Um, I got over that thinking I was once again free to Resume my high paced, frantic uh, desire to do well, to achieve well, to lead my church to be successful in the usual ways that's measured, numbers, and dollars. Um, And uh, so I jumped right back in. Uh, Two months later, I began to have experiences of bumping into things that I could not explain. Um, A a scan proved uh, from the doctor, the neurologist I was seeing, that I'd had a stroke in the occipital region of the brain, which is at the rear of the brain, and where the, uh, the functions of vision uh, take place. Um, I recovered largely from that, and again began to uh, resume my frantic uh, pace of 60 hour weeks of relentless demands upon myself and I emphasize those were mainly my own and not from my congregation, uh, who I think felt very sympathetic toward me, but did not know how to come to me and say, please slow down. Um, So I maintain that frantic pace and relentless desire to achieve more, work harder, do more. Um, two months following the first stroke, uh, I began to have tingling and numbness on my entire left side. Th- this happened on a Saturday morning. Um, it would tingle and then go away. And again, my thought was, I'm 33. What could this could this possibly be? This surely can't be serious. It tingles a bit and then it goes away. And so I went ahead on Sunday and held two worship services—one in the morning, one in the evening—and uh, was able to do that. The next day on Monday, approximately twenty-four hours after the tingling had started, I was having lunch with one of the leaders of my congregation, and the tingling resumed. And I told him uh, to not worry that this had begun two days earlier and would go away. And I said, I'm sure it will now. But as we sat there eating our lunch, the tingling did not go away. And I said, I'd better get home. Uh, The tingling is continuing. Uh, This was affecting my entire left side, including my left leg. And I was driving a car with a standard transmission at the time, which required, of course, my using a clutch with my left foot and leg. And so I prayed very seriously uh, that I could get home across some very busy major thoroughfares and they're in the southeast suburbs of Washington. Did get home. As I walked in the door, my in-laws were visiting and as I began to speak to them, I noticed that my, the left side of my mouth was pulling away from center and my speech was slurred and my mother-in-law said, oh, my, he's having a stroke. And the sheer terror hit me as I told her to please call my neurologist, who then asked that they bring me to the hospital, and which they did. And I remained in, in a hospital, not just that one, for approximately three months from that point, uh, both in early recovery and then in an initial round of rehabilitation. Which lasted for several years. Um, my life radically changed because of the paralysis of my entire left side. Um, my thinking seemed confused. Um, I felt like I was living in a some kind of
0: other reality world. Is there like a is there like a spectrum of severity and... So that yours was like a 8 or a 9 or a 7? Or is there, is, is there a way to classify that as to how severe your stroke was?
1: The neurologist at Johns Hopkins Hospital who treated me for over a month and a neurologist at Duke University Hospital where I had further treatment uh, said that the second stroke was very serious the initial one uh, in the occipital region was less serious. But because the, the second one was in what they call the frontal parietal region of the brain, it affected some of the higher levels of uh, functioning more intellectually, and uh, uh, obviously my left motor function was affected, uh, which is why my left arm, left leg, uh, ceased to function for a short time. Um, the higher functions were the more difficult functions to recover and to heal from. Uh, there's not a, a scale of one to ten that neurologists use. They they speak about uh, individually about uh, what the individual's deficits are. They carefully test. There, there was testing uh, repeatedly to find where the perceptual deficits are, um, and that helped them pinpoint what areas of my brain were affected, what functions were affected. Um, I remember uh, numerous uh, young professionals coming by from the hospital who were probably students because both of those hospitals were medical school training centers uh, and as part of their uh, educational process would interview this unusual stroke victim. I'm obviously one of those 25 percent under 65 who had experienced stroke um, at that time and to some extent it's still true that medical facilities are much less comfortable and not as experienced in dealing with Younger stroke survivors, because three fourths of stroke survivors are older people.
0: When well, you had said, I, I think I had remembered you saying that that there is a difference in that yours is on which side of the brain, as opposed to what people who have like a heart attack and have a stroke as a result of that is on on the other side of the brain.
1: Well, uh, a my both of my strokes were on the in the right hemisphere, um, the source of the, the stroke does not affect where it affects uh, the particular region of the brain. It's, it, that, the, the place where the, the brain is affected has to do with the, the blood vessels um, that are supplying blood to the brain. Uh, and for instance, uh, as you question, a heart attack can affect either side um and so that does not uh, it just happened that because if i had had shingles virus on the uh the left side of my face instead of the right side then that would have that could have caused a very very similar damage um but on the other side but on the other side um so it's strokes are, uh, are very hard to pattern they are each unique uh, both in the region of the brain they affect and our brain is so incredibly complex and we take that for granted uh, constantly that we perform these many functions and yet a stroke can wipe out one piece of a long uh, process of neurons who, for instance, enable us to have conversations like you and I are having right now. Um, And a piece of of that can be affected and damaged by uh, a stroke. And I might be looking at you as I am now, David, and see and describe your eyes, your mouth, your nose, uh, the shape of your head, and not recognize you as David Rayburn. I learned this from a neuropsychologist at one of the rehab programs I was in, that there are six functions of vision, uh, and any one of those can get damaged and skew our overall perceptions of things. Uh, There has been uh, great research done and professional medical journal articles done on the recognition of faces, which is why I use that example. Uh, That showed up with me, and when I first went back after an initial rehabilitation to the church I was pastoring in suburban Washington, I was able to stand behind a pulpit. I was able to kind of haltingly preach but the greatest frustration was as people left the service and I was doing the traditional greeting by the pastor as people left and shaking hands and saying, hello, Mr. and Mrs. Adams or whoever it might have been, and uh, that I would look at people and their faces and not recognize them. It was bizarre to say the least. It was embarrassing because uh, I could see the shapes of their faces and heads. And it was, it was their voices that really clued me as to who these individuals were. And it was extremely embarrassing, uh, which speaks to the uh, emotional side of, of stroke recovery, uh, that things happen that are extremely difficult to explain how could it make sense that I can describe the details of your face and not recognize you as the individual I know? That is extremely bizarre-sounding, and it's extremely bizarre to describe, and it's extremely embarrassing to experience that. But that's that's an example of my own experience. Uh, the, uh, the region of my brain that... Uh, uh, Because the frontal parietal lobe affects judgment and affects a sense of uh, sensitivity to environment, to appropriateness. Um, One can be, uh, it is easy to have made occasionally comments to people that were out of place, that were inappropriate, that Uh, were almost without my awareness that they were unsociably acceptable Um, and I had lost the ability or the ability was damaged to understand societals uh,
0: society's
1: rules and norms for proper behavior in company with other people.
0: So you had to relearn that? I had to relearn
1: that and that's where uh, I simply began focusing on those behaviors, uh, from the time I was discharged from Johns Hopkins hospital, I was aware of the, some of the more emotional parts of my recovery. I was depressed and they started me on antidepressant medicines, um, But it was later that I began to seek more psychotherapy for help in coping. And oftentimes, uh, uh, my therapist would say, Robert, as I would describe behavior, that sounds, I remember one time as an example, when I was doing my uh, training at uh, Duke Hospital uh, as a chaplain for one year, in clinical pastoral education i'm a star trek fan and i had as the message on my home phone to take messages that they that the party calling had reached uh, starbase randolph and that they were invited to leave the star date and the appropriate message uh, for the captain of the ship um one of my supervisors called one time to leave me a message and said, said, I don't know what the star date is, but, Robert, here's what you need to know. My therapist at the time said, Robert, that sounds very juvenile, and you are trying to become a professional again. You need to have something that sounds more professional. That was a nuanced uh, kind of thing. And, yes, I did change that message so that it sounded more like a professional minister, Chaplain, rather than just some geeky guy who loves Star Trek. That's just an example of my recovery.
0: Well, you had talked about that. Um, you know, you were the you were the red winner. Uh, so, kind of, what was the impact of this on your family? Uh, what was the impact of this on your career? Uh, how did the, all that the, come uh, about?
1: In both cases, the impact was very, very severe, uh, and seemingly for some time hopeless. Um, The changes in my personality that resulted from the neural damage, and that example I gave a minute ago is is one relatively small example of that where my judgment was impaired and my perceptions were skewed. Um, I was not acting the way I had been acting. And so the person I was married to at the time, my now former wife, uh, was under great strain to try to adjust to the changes in me. Unbeknownst to me, she did not talk about that in my presence. She uh, chose to simply not talk about that at all. And, uh, and yet my, my sense was that she was upset with me, but uh, I did not know how, why, uh, and that did not come out until uh, we were in a therapy session uh, several years later, and the therapist asked her if the marriage was in trouble, and her response was, yes, the marriage is in very deep trouble, which was the first clear understanding I had that my marriage was in serious jeopardy and I did not know how to repair it and went into a panic mode of, of what will happen to me if I lose my family. Um, my ability to function as a pastor, my congregation was seriously impaired. My uh, ability to speak, uh, the intonations of my voice were deeply impaired. Uh, my, my voice now has a pretty good range of depth. Uh, in those for at least a year when I talked it all came out sounding like this and no matter how hard I tried there was no intonation or depth in my speaking voice which is extremely frustrating for a preacher Um, and I did not know how to explain that it was a couple of years later when I did my own research and found that there is a term for that kind of damage um and it's it's called a prosody, a p r o s o d y. It is less common than the aphasia, which is the trouble that people have who have strokes on the other hemisphere, where they cannot speak what they want to say. Uh, that is what we are most commonly aware of. But the the capacity to express feeling and depth in one's voice is less commonly known. And I was determined as a person who wants to know about things to find out what the problem was. And it was at a second rehabilitation hospital that I spent hours in their medical library discovering about what this atrocity meant. It meant that I just did not have the ability at that point to express myself. And so I was determined to find a way ahead that seemed to be a dead end to keep preaching and so I said well if there is no possibility for me to preach again then I need to do something different I did not know what that was I went through some extensive evaluation programs in ministry and found that my long-term love of counseling was probably my strongest suit and so I looked at pursuing that in the future um, as a pastoral counselor, which is a form of ministry and for which there is uh, certification available. And uh, uh, so I, I wandered in a kind of wilderness for a time of uncertainty about my future. Um, and this, this was part of my quandary is that there was no clear way ahead, it seemed and I was stuck in what seemed like neutral. I was living on a disability check because I had applied for and received disability benefits from Social Security because my neural damage was so extensive. Um, After my uh, wife separated from me, then I was on my own, but thanks to the disability check, I was able to survive Financially, I was not able to work, um, and I was simply, it seemed like dead in the water. Um, I did not understand still why this was taking so long, why I felt so confused. Um, It just took a very long time. Um, This was in the late 80s, about three years after my strokes that I was living on my own and felt very, very confused and despairing. The despair came from not seeing any clear options for my ministerial career and also because I was severely depressed. Um, this was partly a biochemical uh, cause, uh, which often happens after strokes. One of the reasons we're not more aware of it is that because three-fourths of stroke happened with older people who are usually already impaired in life and not living active lives and we think okay well grandpa is uh, not feeling well but he's an old man so it really doesn't matter too much that's just grandpa he's old he's had a stroke and so depression is basically ignored in older people like that who are stroke survivors however young people who are depressed. It's, it's critical because younger folks, especially someone in their 30s, as I was, is not ready to just lie in the bed and coast toward the inevitable death. And so uh, I, I began to speak up as I found opportunity to say, why do I feel so bad? Uh, why is this happening? Um, and I found Resistance, if not av- uh, almost uh, stonewalling to respond to those questions. Um, but part of what was unleashed in me was a profound desire to get to the root of what happened, to find a new way forward, and to not give up. Um, this is what uh, I have called in an article I wrote living in exile. Um, I used a biblical image of the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon um, and uh, trying to find their way when they were away from the familiar places of Jerusalem and their homeland, away from their practice of their religion, away from the customs that uh, kept their lives orderly. I was living in a land of exile where I was in a new environment, living as a single person with my children on alternate weekends. I was living without a career. I, I joke to people sometimes uh, about the normal greeting, especially that 30-something-year-old males greet each other. Hi, I'm Sam Jones, and I'm Uh, an engineer with Lockheed Aircraft, for instance, and I would simply say, Hi, I'm Robert Randolph, and just not say anything else, and would wait for this uh, uncomfortable pause as the other individual would say, kind of thinking, Well, what the heck do you do? Because midlife males in particular define ourselves by what we do. I, this is who I, This is my name, and I do X or Y, and uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm defined by that, and so here I am, living in this exile of disability, unemployment, um, and people don't know what to do with me. I introduce myself. I'm just Robert Randolph. Uh, I do not have. A profession. I do not have a job. Um, I have strange experiences that I don't know how to describe that anyone would understand. It was a strange and bizarre land for a young guy who felt like he was on his way up in a ministerial career, uh, who had a young, beautiful family, who was well respected by many people as a rising star. Um, I had a number of uh, significant roles in Baptist life while I was still in South Carolina. I was regarded by those who knew me as somebody who had great things ahead, and now all that had crashed and burned, and I was living in Raleigh, North Carolina, in a uh, very run-down apartment building, just getting by um, with no sense of future hope, um, and not sure what any future held. Um, I'm going to shift here, uh, from that note of, um, negative, negative, uh, outlook and a very, very dark time, um, which I think is very under expressed among Christians, um, uh, There is a classic of Christian devotion called the dark night of the soul, which needs far more attention and readership than it has ever received. It is something that Christian people in particular do not like to talk about. There are numerous psalms in the book of Psalms that are called psalms of lament that describe this darkness in great detail, and yet we have overlooked those. But this was a period of profound darkness in my life. Uh, my career, my family, um, my hope for the future just seemed incredibly dark. And it all seemed very hopeless. Um, I want to shift, as I said, to another kind of part of my journey, which is what I call the treasure in broken vessels, which is an image from. Paul's writings uh, about that Christians are like uh, shards of broken pottery that are easily broken and are very hard to put back together. Uh, And as I was attempting to put some life together, uh, there seemed to be nothing that fit anymore. Uh, My ability to speak, to preach, seemingly was gone. My emotional stability was damaged. Uh, I was still dealing with depression actively. Um, I was divorced in a world, especially among Baptists, where divorced clergy are treated with, if not uh, hostility, basically just being ignored. One friend of mine said, uh, half-jokingly, Baptists are the only people that uh either that take their ministers and treat them like bummed up horses they either shoot them or put them out to pasture um he was half joking but there was truth to that i was either kind of put out to pasture and you know to not bother the established world with my uh damaged self, or just just go away and just act like you're dead but something began to well up in me that countered all of that darkness and all of that negative reception from the culture of the church and society, and that was that uh, I discovered the whole ministry of healing that is so much a foundation in the Bible and in Christianity and yet has been pushed to the margins. I had the blessing to meet a great scholar, healer, and academic named Morton Kelsey, who was an Episcopal clergy who taught at Notre Dame University. It was ironic. He was an Episcopalian teaching at the premier Catholic university in America. He also was someone who had written extensively about healing, healing, and uh, so I, as I had the opportunity to meet him at a retreat center in Pennsylvania, I began to say, healing, that's not something that I've ever heard much about. In all my years of training in seminary, even in clinical pastoral education, there was very little emphasis on healing except in medical terms. Spiritual dimensions of healing were not mentioned, or greatly held at bay. Um, I was skeptical that such a thing could happen. I was skeptical that there was hope that I could be healed from this terrible illness that had befallen and so put me on the margins of my career, my life, and it seemed like everything. But uh, as I came to know Morton Kelsey and looked, a new at Scripture, especially the focus of Jesus on healing, and his being very blunt to say that his seminary experience had been that healing was totally ignored. And so here is an Episcopalian who who are not noted as being great biblical scholars teaching a Baptist for whom the Scripture is supposedly central to our life um, about what's in the Scripture. I thought that ironic and and a bit humorous, and as I began to read scripture and read of Jesus' healing ministry, I came to agree with him, and I began to ask myself, is healing something that is possible for me? Um, And I didn't have an answer to that question right away, but I began reading Morton Kelsey's books, His last name is K-E-L-S-E-Y, in case you are interested in pursuing, uh, finding his books online at some place. First name Morton, just like the salt, M-O-R-T-O-N. He's been dead for some 20 years now, but a great, great source of wisdom uh, that is little known among more evangelical circles, so I commend him and his writings to you. Um, He opened me up to hope, which was probably that which was most lacking um, in my life, hope that Robert Randolph, the young guy who aspired to be a great progressive, quote, even liberal Baptist minister of the 1970s, might have a new beginning, might have a future in ministry. might find new hope, new joy. Um, Out of that early discernment process, which took time, again, which I had begun to discover the value of taking more time than I ever dreamed was possible, I discerned that God wanted me to do more clinical pastoral education, the kind of education that I so enjoyed and thrived on previously. Um, I was living in Raleigh. The, the most prestigious CPE program, as it's often called in the area, was at Duke University Hospital. And I thought it it just incredibly presumptuous of me that I could even have a shot at doing that year of, of residency program. It was called, and I was able to do that, not only to complete it, but to win the excellence award that is given to one of the annual residents each year, Um, to my amazement, um, and found new joy in doing ministry with people in trouble, patients with all kinds of ailments, people who, like me, had been blown out of the water, people who were searching for spiritual guidance, out of that, I found new joy. Out of that, I discovered that I love to still lead worship and preach. I became the, the one of the nine residents who most frequently led our worship services that the chaplains had each week. Uh, I began to be known as the storyteller amongst the chaplains, uh, which is something that comes out of my mountain background and something that's very much biblical. This was a far distance from the young pastor who loved wearing three-piece suits back when they were the rage of fashion in the 70s and who was intent on climbing the ladder of ministerial success. Now I'm finding myself as a good old boy, mountain storyteller slash preacher um, and being... Proud to claim those titles. I spoke at a county council board meeting recently and described myself as a preacher to those folks. And I was not preaching as such, but speaking to a community concern. But uh, these are now the ways I most frequently describe myself. I want to close with uh, a poem from a great Baptist of 400 years ago who was imprisoned and had his time frame radically altered as he sat in prison day after day after day in London. His name was John Bunyan. He dared to claim the freedom to worship God as he chose. And his poem in his classic epic, Pilgrim's Progress, went like this. And it has become the description of my journey of these past 34 years who would true valor see let him come hither one here will constant be come wind come weather there's no discouragement shall make him once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim whoso beset her round with dismal stories do but themselves confound her strength the more is nothing can her affright she'll with a lion fight but she'll have a right to be a pilgrim hobgoblin nor foul fiend can daunt his spirit he knows in the end shall life inherit then come what may he'll not fear what others say he'll labor night and day to be a pilgrim
0: now you have um uh, had a career as a chaplain and uh, Uh, And are continuing that in a volunteer way, uh, working specifically with other stroke survivors. And so talk just a little bit uh, about that, about uh, uh, how you as a stroke survivor uh, interact with other stroke survivors and in what way. And then also kind of give us just a brief uh, insight into what we as non-stroke folks uh, need to be doing in our relationship with stroke survivors
1: well I come to Mission Hospital on Fridays visiting my fellow stroke survivors with two forms of credentials one is extensive training that's required of any professional chaplain in private in- industries such as hospitals or state government which is one year of clinical pastoral education I actually have one and a half years of full-time CPE training, which is the kind of training that helps us learn how to be with people and how to help them find their own religious roots. So I bring all of that professional high-level training to my visits with them. But I'm not just there as a clinician. I'm not just there as a professional caregiver. I'm also there as a pilgrim with them on the journey of the hard knocks of experiencing stroke. And so I will typically walk in and introduce myself as the chaplain on the floor that day and ask how things are going. Uh, The patient may say, uh, I'm doing fine, and uh, give a Indication they really don't, are not interested in talking to a chaplain, which is fine. It's a voluntary kind of conversation. and Many times I say thank you and have a blessed day. Sometimes the person will say, oh, I've been waiting for someone like you all day long. And I will ask, well, tell me about why that is. And as they proceed to tell their story, um, they might begin to tell me, of what has befallen them from their stroke? What they're experiencing, and uh, I step in to say, at appropriate places, well, you know that that's that's a difficult story, and I just want you to know that I am also a stroke survivor, and uh, many times that brings a a new shining of light in their face to say, oh, uh, and that's when I am both clinical caregiver and a fellow stroke survivor, a pilgrim with them on the journey. And they may ask me specific questions about my experience. They may ask me, uh, how long will it be until I am better like you? Because they are in the bed and may have significant paralysis or other disabilities that are hampering them. And here I am standing before them talking relatively coherently as I am right now and seemingly uh functioning fairly normally and I say everyone's experience is different and we never know what can be possible but I can say to you my experience has been that uh I have found there to be great hope for the future and I believe that's true for any of us um what I'm describing is what is called neuroplasticity. In a, in a book by a neuroscientist named uh, Norman Deutsch, Doidge, D-O-I-D-G-E, who is a MD and a neuroscientist, uh, it has found, been found that the brain is very, very adaptable uh, and uh, can change even at advanced ages, people who are old. Uh, which is a new cutting edge for neurology and neuroscience um, that any of us have adaptable brains and can learn things and rebuild pathways that none of us could ever imagine. So uh, this new branch of neuroscience uh, called... uh, A, an adaptable brain, a – I'm having a, a moment of lapse here um, from my own near-old damage, uh, which happens sometimes despite my uh, recovery. Uh, and, and I'm having a moment here where I'm having difficulty finding the name again I used a minute ago of uh, – uh, Neuroplasticity, there it is. Um, so, uh, it's when I panic and I'm on the spot and feel pressure, like I did just now, that it escapes me, and I have that happen in conversations. And what I've learned is, it's okay to admit it, and if I relax, it will usually come to me. Um, so that's one of the things I have learned.
0: Well, so, how do we? How do like say? How how do I? Or, or other folks, other Christians, uh, what is it you want us to know about having relationships with stroke people?
1: That it is impossible for any one of us, even a stroke survivor like myself, to fully understand the experience, experiences of somebody who's had a stroke, especially now some strokes are very minor, and there's hardly any visible or even uh, awareness of a stroke. Uh, but for someone who has had some significant neurological damage or injury, there's no way any of us can fully understand that person's perceptions. That person himself or herself cannot understand them, and to, for us to say, "Well, it sounds like," is is a uh, not a positive and certainly not helpful to the person. It's, it's more like I learned from my mentor Wayne Oates in clinical pastoral care in seminary who would ask people who had severe mental illness, well, tell me what it's like to be that way. And that's a basic cornerstone of, of clinical training for clergy that uh, we learn in those experiences. So I would say approach them, i just say, tell me what you're feeling, tell me what you're experiencing, describe it to me. Don't presume to know what that is.
0: Well Robert, you've uh, given us a lot to think about and especially your uh willingness and courage to to tell us of, of your experiences and kind of be uh open and revelatory about that. Uh, that gives us great uh great insight. Uh and to what others are going through. So I thank you for being here today with me. My pleasure. You are listening uh, to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. There are times when one's faith overlaps one's patriotism, when efforts to live faithfully share common interest with one's efforts to live patriotically. A significant part of the Baptist heritage that shaped me, and which I value, is the spirit of cooperation. My kind of Baptists believe that despite substantive differences, people can accomplish important and amazing things by cooperating on those things about which they agree, on however broad or general a plane that agreement may occur. That value seems to parallel the intent of our founding visionaries of our nation, the Constitution established means by which peoples of radically different beliefs and values can live peacefully and cooperatively together. So as a cooperative Baptist and as a patriot, I believe it is important to build bridges of conversation and cooperation with every kind of life perspective. One group with which Christianity has had a tragic and terrible relationship instead of experiences is the Wiccan or pagan community. For my part, I want to contribute to changing that history. So my next guest is Byron Ballard. She is a Wiccan high priestess. I hope you will tune in to our conversation. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father, Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings
1: from my mouth. Speak your-